I encountered a term from Indian philosophy that grabbed my attention, Atman. Atman refers to the true self, what remains in the absence of ego. I thought this was cool because I have been known on the podcast and in my writing to refer to two distinct meanings of self. For want of better terminology, I call these the self-construct and the self as point of view. The latter is a bit clumsy, I admit, so the term Atman, which is the closest I have found to what I mean, intrigues me. I know about as much about the philosophy of ancient India as I do about the place's flora and fauna, which is to say, not a lot. I have an elementary school level of exposure. I can locate the place on a world map. I know they have elephants and Bengal tigers. I know of the existence of Hinduism and yoga and so on. But apparently, before there was Hinduism, with its polytheism and all the rest, there was an ancient tradition of Indian philosophy that seems worthwhile to look into. This is from the History of Philosophy by A.C. Grayling. Quote, The history of the period between 1500 and 500 BCE in northwestern India is known as the Vedic period, when the Vedas took shape, and with them, in the later part of this period, instruction manuals called Brahmanas for carrying out the Vedic rites and commentaries on the inner meaning of the texts and rituals called Aranyakas. Discussion of a philosophical kin is found in some of these latter, but the chief philosophical texts connected with the Vedas are the Upanishads. Upanishad literally means to sit attentively close, that is, to a master or a teacher, and they are known as Vedanta because they are regarded as the final parts or closing sections of the Vedas encapsulating the Vedas' high meaning or purpose, unquote. So I've heard of the Upanishads, but I had never read any of them before now. I read a couple of those texts and found them interesting. I word that the subject matter is so subtle that translation to English is imperfect and potentially misleading. According to what I've been learning, the term Atman is usually translated as self with a capital S. Sometimes it is translated as soul. Neither of these seems quite right, so I'm hanging on to the hope that Atman really is a word for the self as point of view, the subjective witness which is ultimately what we are. Grayling goes on, quote, Of the hundred or so Upanishads, ten are regarded as most important, and among them the great forest teaching holds a significant place. It was composed about 700 BCE and is attributed to the sage Yajnavalkya. It begins, Om, dawn is the head of the sacrificial horse. The sun is the eye of the sacrificial horse. The wind is his breath. The fire that is in all men is his open mouth. The year is his body. That gives a misleading impression of what follows, for the exchanges and discussions constituting the main body of the text are a striking source of concepts about the self, Atman, and its oneness with ultimate reality, Brahman, which appear in more express detail in darshanas of the philosophical tradition. The manner in which these theses are presented admits of widely varying interpretations, but the richness of suggestion is great. The Sanskrit scholar who did much to bring the Upanishadic tradition to serious Western attention, Paul Doyson, wrote that it throws, if not the most scientific, yet still the most intimate and immediate light upon the last secret of existence, a view shared by Schopenhauer, who kept a copy of the Upanishads at his bedside, and said of them, In the whole world there is no study so beneficial and so elevating. It has been the solace of my life, and it will be the solace of my death. Unquote. That's a strong endorsement. 
Notice that Grayling was happy to define Atman as the self in this passage. But if I understand correctly from my brief exposure to its usage, Atman is really a kind of selfless self, the self as point of view, stripped of all ego and personality and personal narrative, indeed stripped of everything personal. After all, as I have tried to say so many times before, I, for one, am not a human being. I am not a person. I am a mind, apparently, whether by illusion or not, entangled with the fate of a human person. I am not a man, but Atman. And now we encounter that other great and important word, Brahman, which Grayling defines above as ultimate reality. If that is what Brahman means, then as an investigator of the place for consciousness within the physical world, I must be in search of the relationship between Atman and Brahman. And that is the subject of much of the Upanishads. Do the philosophical observations of the ancient Indians accord with my own? Let's go on with a little more from A.C. Grayling. Quote, The Astaka schools of philosophy share a common form of departure, whether in dualist or monist forms, from the Upanishadic conception of the relationship between Atman, self or soul, and Brahman, the absolute, reality as a whole, the universal self. In the classical Upanishadic view, Atman and Brahman are two sides, subjective and objective, of the same reality. They are one and the same. This is the meaning of the the Mahavakya great saying of the Upanishads, that thou art, interpreted to entail, I am that, and hence Atman is Brahman. The articulation of this conception of the ultimate nature of reality together with the working out in detail of the metaphysical and epistemological aspects of a view that would identify the correct route to the soteriological outcome, namely, how to achieve liberation from suffering by overcoming the ignorance that is its foundational cause, is what the Astaka schools aim to achieve. Buddhism's claim is that this is a mistake. In sharp contrast to the Astaka programs, Buddhism asserts that there is no Atman, no Brahman, no absolute reality, there is not only no self, but no permanence of any kind. The postulation of the existence of an attempt to explicate the nature of a permanent self is not only the wrong target, it is the very source of suffering itself." So now we see that Buddhism has entered the picture. And moreover, we see the conflict between two different views about the nature of the mind. I distinguish two meanings of self one which is undeniable, and one which is an illusion. Egoism is the conflation of the two ideas, the mistake, what Indian philosophy might call maya, in thinking that I am Jesse, with his personality and his dispositions and his emotions and all the rest. That can't be, not in the ultimate analysis. I am witness to thoughts and feelings and coercions of all kinds. I experience pain and doubt and fear and joy, but I am not these things. These are not me any more than the objects that I see in front of me are me. I am a witness, something invisible to the world, even to myself, an inference from the fact of conscious contents. Suppose I could sit quietly and forget all of these things, take no more notice of the contents of consciousness, reduced to almost nothing, knowing nor caring not who I am or where I sit. There is only the momentary being, a true state of mindfulness, contentless continuity, nothing but a window into empty time. There I would remain no more than my true nature, Atman. 
This kind of meditation might be the closest I can get to isolating myself from Jesse, to an authentic, subjective reality. But that wouldn't do Jesse much good, would it? You know, he has work to do, the life of a human man to carry out. He has friends and a family and a human community to contend with, to take his place among. Would you respect a wolf who sat in his den staring contemplatively at the cave wall while his brethren raised the pups, patrolled the territory, and stalked the musk oxen? If not, then how could I abandon Jesse for my own inward pursuits? What a weird thing we are, the minds of men. The following three passages are from one of the Upanishads. Quote, As fire, though one, having entered the world, becomes various according to what it burns, so does the Atman within all living beings, though one, become various according to what it enters. It also exists outside. As air, though one, having entered the world, becomes various according to what it enters, so does the Atman within all living beings, though one, become various according to what it enters. It also exists outside. As the sun, the eye of the whole world is not defiled by external impurity seen by the eyes, thus the one inner self of all living beings is not defiled by the misery of the world being outside it." Unquote. This conception of consciousness implies that each individuated mind is pinched off, delimited portion of a mind at large. In this sense, Atman is Brahman. Alas, I do not believe this to be true. This, I think, is a limitation of the contemplative approach to discovering reality. The insight that Atman is Brahman, that we are one with ultimate reality, is discoverable through direct experience. This is the ego-bereft, mystical experience acquired through long meditation or by the influence of psychedelic substances. My position is that these drugs deepen the subjective experience, abrogating a set of illusions about the self and its situation. This, I think, has great value. Yet I think the story has not reached bedrock truth. A deep, underlying illusion remains to be witnessed. The experience of oneness with all is often called enlightenment. The mistake is to believe oneself to have experienced the undeniable fact that all of reality, the whole universe, is one. Perhaps, having known firsthand such an experience would leave me with that same and unshakable impression, yet I believe that such experiences reveal something else. They reveal that we are not separate from the contents of our consciousness, that the whole mind is one, and all its contents are within it. If I, Atman, have contained within me all that I experience all the time, then I am a self-contained unity somewhere within the bounds of Brahman. If Atman is Brahman, then there is no reality outside of me. There is a definite charm and wisdom to the Eastern philosophy that I've been exposed to, which is pretty limited, admittedly. The approach, it seems to me, is phenomenological. One attempts to directly apprehend truth. By long and arduous meditation and contemplation, one comes to recognize that he is not distinct from everything that he sees and hears, that they are a part of himself, and he one with all of them. Once understood directly, this conviction of oneness is unassailable. Atman is Brahman, he might conclude with certainty. This phenomenology is precisely that which undergirds my theoretical framework for consciousness. Atman is the point of view, the subjectivity, that which ex experiences content. Brahman is not ultimate reality. Brahman is the unity, the wholeness of conscious experience. According to the TICL, the mind as a whole experiences the distinctions within itself, 
This is in stark contrast to the idea that the mind experiences the world outside, like a window upon nature, out of which a homunculus peers. Given this conception, Atman is Brahman, self-evidently. The problem is that Brahman is therefore not ultimate reality. If Brahman is ultimate reality, then Atman ain't Brahman. Sam Harris is a renowned critic of religion, but it is clear that he has a deep interest in matters of truth and morality. His spiritual approach, if it can rightly be called that, seems closely aligned with Buddhism in that he denies the existence of the self. In no sense, however, could he be accused of denying consciousness. In Waking Up, Sam Harris writes, quote, The Abrahamic religions are incorrigibly dualistic and faith-based. In Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the human soul is conceived as genuinely separate from the divine reality of God. The appropriate attitude for a creature that finds itself in this circumstances is some combination of terror, shame, and awe. In the best case, notions of God's love and grace provide some relief. But the central message of these faiths is that each of us is separate from and in relationship to a divine authority who will punish anyone who harbors the slightest doubt about his supremacy. The Eastern tradition presents a very different picture of reality, and its highest teachings, found from the various schools of Buddhism and the nominally Hindu tradition of Advaita Vedanta, explicitly transcend dualism. By their lights, consciousness itself is identical to the very reality that one might otherwise mistake for God. Unquote. This might be overstated, at least from what I have seen of the Upanishads. Brahman is the ultimate reality or the ultimate truth, I think quite reasonably the same thing which is called God. The distinction for Indian philosophy seems to be that the individuated conscious minds are part of God rather than submissive to God. He is greater than us, certainly in either case. We stand in relation to him as constituent parts rather than outsiders looking on. Religions add personification and additional claims about God and his dispositions. These claims ultimately are what atheists such as Harris take issue issue with. Me too. Yet I stand in awe of the universe, of ultimate reality, and I consider the truth to be sacred. Quote, although the teachings of Buddhism and Advaita are embedded in more or less conventional religions, they contain empirical insights about the nature of consciousness that do not depend upon faith. One can practice most techniques of Buddhist meditation or the method of self-inquiry of Advaita and experience the advertised changes in one's consciousness without ever believing in the law of karma or in the miracles attributed to Indian mystics. To get started as a Christian, however, one must first accept a dozen implausible things about the life of Jesus and the origins of the Bible, and the same can be said minus a few unimportant details about Judaism and Islam. If one should happen to discover that the sense of being an individual soul is an illusion, one will be guilty of blasphemy everywhere west of the Indus. There is no question that many religious disciples can produce interesting experiences in suitable minds. It should be clear, however, that engaging a faith-based practice, whatever its effects, isn't the same as investigating the nature of one's mind absent any doctrinal assumptions." Unquote. Yeah, it's the doctrinal assumptions which smuggled in corrupt the whole business. Here's an observation. What if a cardinal mistake has been made with respect to God or Brahman of the same type as we so easily make about our own nature? I am not my self-construct with its personal characteristics. I am something more fundamental, Atman. Uncontemplated, it seems as if I am Jesse, with his arms and legs and eyes and opinions and moods, 
all as part of me, but they aren't. I am a part of Jesse. I exist in space and time along with him, but I am not identical to him. Not at all. I am Atman. Suppose the major religious doctrines have made the same error about God, thinking of him as having opinions and moods, an ego, maybe even arms and legs and eyes. These constraints make God or Brahman smaller than he really is. If God is not ultimate reality, then he falls within it and is therefore smaller than the highest truth. A God that has enemies, which he smites with bolts of lightning and deluges of water, is not the ultimate reality. Ultimate reality has no enemies. A God who performs miracles is not the ultimate reality. There are no exemptions to the laws of ultimate reality. Why would God break his own perfect laws? I recognize that this description of God as Brahman, or ultimate reality, is not really what religious people mean by God. There is a moral polarity implied in the concept of God as conceived of in the Abrahamic religions. God is good. God is the way, not just the truth. This means that there is a path to follow, not just toward the ultimate truth, but toward ultimate good. Whatever that direction is, that is the purpose of religion. These prescriptions amount to behavioral dogmas, having each no doubt some measure of wisdom in them, but religion is well beyond the scope of this episode. I set out to consider the idea from Indian philosophy of Atman. If what I am in the final analysis is a point of view upon contents, not a person, and certainly not a personality, then what does it mean for me to be authentic? Is this Atman? Is this what I am? It seems to me that I am called upon by nature to pilot the ship of Jesse. Thus, I must be as effective and good a Jesse as I can. That's the humane thing to do, to pursue a good life in the full sense of the word. If I am not Jesse, but I am the liver of his life, he is my person. I believe in him. Knowing as I do that I am a mind and not a person, and yet making the choice to pursue a good life on behalf of Jesse, is this a religious decision? Life is suffering, they observe. The Buddhist project seems to be aimed at overcoming the suffering. But at what cost? The wolf inside the den, while his kin are outliving their animal lives. Suppose he has, through depth of contemplation, inured himself to the cares of the world and all its attendant pains. Those others in the pack, they will suffer and die, but he is exempt from all that. Is he not also exempt from love and the brotherhood? from the call of the full moon, the thrill of the hunt, exempt from being a wolf? A shame that fate would rob him of such a noble and heroic opportunity. If there are many lives and one of them for me is to be a wolf, I pray that I will embrace the call to adventure and be a goddamn wolf while I can. Yes, I believe in Jesse. I'll do my best to live as him, to recognize with gratitude the life that I am afforded to live, this call to adventure. And wherever I am going, I walk together with him. Just one set of footprints as I walk along the beach. But which one of us is carrying the other?